Today's conversation is brought to you by the Wheaton College Graduate School. With more than 20 master's, doctoral, and certificate programs, the Wheaton College Graduate School is preparing servant scholars to engage the world as humanitarian responders, therapists, theologians, biblical scholars, outdoor ministry leaders, and more. Find out how the Wheaton College Graduate School's flexible or residential programs will inspire, challenge, and equip you at wheaton.edu slash conversation. As far as the church is concerned, access, or I should say having a ramp at a church or handicapped parking places, that that's access um, to the table. Um, mainstreaming is being invited to the table, having a seat at the table. Inclusion is uh, having a voice at the table. But belonging, that's being heard, being listened to at the table. That means you, you have a place. Your, your spiritual gift is being exercised in the body of Christ. So. Today's conversation is the podcast of the National Association of Evangelicals. I'm your host, Walter Kim, NAE president. In these conversations, we seek to help evangelicals foster thriving communities and to navigate today's complexity with biblical clarity. Today's conversation is with Johnny Erickson Tata, author of several books, including the recently published 45th anniversary edition of Johnny, An Unforgettable Story. She's a radio host and founder of Johnny and Friends, a ministry to and with those impacted by disability. It was an honor to talk with Johnny. And here's our conversation. Thanks so much for joining me today, Johnny. What's well, good to be with you, Walter, and of course, all our listening friends uh, tuning in. Thanks for having me. So uh, I've long admired your ministry, um, not simply out of principle, but out of a deeply personal place. Uh, you and I share a heart for ministry to those with dis disabilities. My, my daughter, Naomi, has Down syndrome, and while certain challenges exist, we've experienced many, many beautiful moments as a family in our churches and with the community at large. Um, as we begin, we recognize that there's quite a journey that you traveled. Um, so would you share a little bit of your story, um, how you became paralyzed, and uh, we will unfold some of the lessons that the Lord has been teaching you uh, through that event. Sure. Well, it's uh, this year marks 55 years that I have been sitting in this wheelchair, Walter. Never, ever did I dare imagine when I broke my neck in the shallow waters of the Chesapeake Bay Back in 1967, as a teenager, never did I dream I'd be living this long, living this healthy, and to be quite frank, living this happy. I really am happy uh, in my circumstances. I know that sounds uh, maybe preposterous to some um, because quadriplegia is a hard, hard disability. And when I was first injured back in 1967, and they rushed me from the shores of the Chesapeake Bay to University of Maryland Hospital. And when doctors told me that I had severed my spinal cord and would be a quadriplegic for the rest of my life without use of my hands or my legs, inability to toilet myself, 
um, walk, run, take a bath myself, I brush my own teeth. When they told me all this, I absolutely collapsed in depression. I just, I, I couldn't compute it. I, I just could not wrap my mind around this new reality that uh, me, the athletic, active, on-the-go teenager, was now going to have to live a life sitting down um, in a wheelchair. That was pretty hard. So depression, uh, depression really sank me in my spirits for a long time. And I look back now, and I think, my goodness, I can't believe the grace and the goodness of God to have pulled me up out of it the way he did. Thank you for sharing um, such a, a tender moment in your life. What, what brought you out of that darkness, out of that depression? You know, people often ask me that, and I look back, Walter, and I honestly am convinced that primarily it was the prayers of brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, there were people who diligently prayed for me, and honestly, I believe I'm still experiencing the repercussion of those prayers. They're still resonating you know, in my life in, in so many ways. But as the way I see it, we don't wrestle against um, um, the flesh and blood of quadriplegia or depression, paralysis, discouragement. We wrestle against powers and principalities that would love nothing more than to keep us steeped and discouragement by our life situation. And so I think God uses prayers to dismantle those spiritual strongholds, to open up pathways of hope in our heart, to, to need our spirits, to soften our souls, because I was very hardened against God at first. But I think prayers open the way for God to work in our lives. So even to this day, Walter, when people ask, how can I best serve my neighbor who just learned she has multiple sclerosis. I always advise them to pray and pray specifically, committedly, and on a regular basis because uh, God can do great things through prayer. My goodness. Mm. Uh, that, that's deeply encouraging, but within that deep encouragement to pray, there was this note of, again, tenderness and honesty and vulnerability of that darkness that you experienced, the depression. And uh, I know that even in the best of, with the best of intentions, folks could say something um, to a person during a period of darkness that can be either less helpful or more helpful. What advice would you give to folks that are walking with someone or maybe someone who him, himself or herself is experiencing that deep, deep darkness despite the prayers of loved ones that may surround them? Well, Walter, I think that Christian service, I mean, actually practicing Christianity with its sleeves rolled up and the life of another who is suffering, oh, that can work miracles. That can really lift depression. Um, normal Christian service should be sacrificial. And when it comes to a special needs family, let's say a mom or a dad who has a child with significant autism, or even my own family, um, me with my quadriplegia, that the people that God used in our lives were those who did not heal the hurt slightly. They did not skate on the surface. 
of my need. They just didn't drop by occasionally and wish us well. They backed up their prayers with action. Uh, They put feet to the faith and that they professed. And uh, I remember there were one or two friends who said to my parents, "Let, let me learn let me learn your daughter's routine, her get up and get down routine. Let me learn how to give her a bed bath and sit her in a wheelchair. So you two can take a break and get off to have some time for yourself. And it was just wonderful to be with those friends who treated me, not like a cripple, not like an invalid. They didn't even treat me differently. They just treated me like one of the gang. And when they got me sitting up in that wheelchair, they took me to the local mall to check out the sales. Uh, went off to the coffee shop and, and uh, you know, had a croissant with, with a latte. I mean, they just treated me like a friend. And I think a good rule of thumb is to just treat people who are despairing in their disability, to treat them with love, tenderness, kindness, and with good deeds. Um, treat them as you would want to be treated yourself if you were in that situation. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was down to earth, hands-on, rubber meets the road, get down, get dirty love, uh, practical love that I think really um, God used to jerk my heart right side up mm-hmm. instead of upside down. I began to lift up out of depression when um, I, was, I was around people who could envision success for me when I was too weak to envision it for myself. You know, they said, Johnny, you can go to college. Come on, we'll work with your faculty administrator and we'll We'll line you up some people to help you take notes in class. We'll line up friends to, you know, be involved in your transportation needs and help you in the cafeteria. I mean, they just envisioned success when I just couldn't. I had no idea what life in a wheelchair was like, but thank God for God's creativity through Christian friends who love, um, as I said, practicing Christianity with its sleeves rolled up. (laughs) How did those um, really powerful and compelling uh, experiences form uh, the founding of your ministry, Johnny and Friends? Well, um, these friends, as I said, all Christians, um, while we were having a lot of fun at the mall, at the coffee shop, (laughs) and at the movie theater, they also sat down with open Bibles next to me, and they helped me grapple through my toughest questions about the goodness of God and, um, and his plan and purpose in my life. And uh, I began to see, Walter, that when I began to see the happiness, that joy, that contentment was within reach, to me, it was so astounding that somebody who's a quadriplegic can be happy and joyful and being hopeful about life, having a plan, a purpose, having a mission to accomplish. When I began to see that transformation in my own life, I wanted to do everything I could to help other people with disabilities experience the same kind of transformation. Um, I had been blessed so much. I did not dare hoard those blessings, but I wanted to pass them on to other families uh, like mine. And so after the Johnny book was written in 1976, I began to get a lot of letters from people all over the United States. Uh, it, was a, it was a bestseller back then. And many of those letters were from special needs families asking, how did you get your pastor involved in your life? 
How did you get your church volunteering with your family? I mean, how did you get, what was your first days like at college? I mean, all kinds of questions. And I thought, I can be useful here. I really can be useful in their lives. And so I wanted to structure a mechanism um, that could help, I don't know, expedite more effective responses to these people. I, I wanted to steward well the influence that God had been blessing me with, with the um, numbers of people that were reading the Johnny book. And so I structured Johnny and Friends uh, in the late 70s as a, as a way of responding to all these letters, all these questions, all these needs that people had. What does the Bible say about miraculous healing? Do you think that faith healers are are, are worth listening to? I mean, all kinds of questions about depression, um, about purpose. And, and so that's how I got started with Johnny and Friends. At first, it was just a correspondence ministry. But then in conjunction with a good church that I was attending at the time that had a thriving disability ministry, um, we began to export, as it were, those programs to other churches to get other congregations energized in helping families like mine. And when that got started, boy, we were bang out of the gate. Mm-hmm. And we've been growing ever since at Johnny and Friends. So it seems like uh, churches then were welcoming of this uh, initiative. Um, was that the case? Or did you experience churches in a wide spectrum, some some welcoming, others skeptical? Um, describe how this unfolded with churches across our country? Well, there were many welcoming churches and those that were skeptical were churches that just weren't sure they wanted to make the sacrifice, just weren't sure they wanted to add another, you know, uh, thing to do on the ministry priority checklist. But often we would say to these churches, these pastors, church leadership, we would point them to Luke chapter 14, where Jesus says to a bunch of people who are really stuck in their comfort zones, you know, he says to the Pharisees and the religious leadership at the time, he says, when you give a banquet, don't invite just your rich friends and your relatives and your neighbors, you know, people that we identify with, people that it's easy to be around, people with whom we're comfortable, that don't make us feel awkward or embarrassed. No, he says, pull up the tent pegs in your thinking. Go beyond your comfort zones. Jesus says, go out. Go out into the the streets and alleys, the highways and the byways. I mean, he's really pushing the envelope there. And he says, find the disabled, the lame and the blind, the poor, and then bring them in. I think one translation says, quote, make them come in, compel them to come in. And then Jesus gives the reasons why, the reason why he's so energetic about reaching out to people with disabilities. He says, do this. You'll be blessed and my father's house will be full. And I love that because often we think when it's uh, helping people with disabilities or special needs families, it's, oh, let's do something to help those poor people that don't have many resources. Let's see what we can do to assist them. It's, you know, there's no... no um, no uh, paternalistic uh, snub your nose at their needs. No, God won't have any of that. He says, do it and you will be blessed, not the people that you're serving. No, those very special needs families are the ones who will bless you if you roll up your sleeves and uh, get down into their 
needs and see what you can do to make a difference. Not only that, but my father's house will be full, Jesus says. Jesus loves diversity. Jesus loves the weak, the strong, the poor, the rich, the have-nots, the haves, uh, the beautiful, the unlovely. Um, he, he, loves, he loves everybody in his church. And people with disabilities should not be excluded. And, and, and Walter, real quickly, I've got a, I don't know where I found this saying. It's not original to me. But I read it somewhere and I thought, wow, that is so true. Um, as far as the church is concerned, access, or I should say having a ramp at a church or handicapped parking places, that, that's access um, to the table. Um, mainstreaming is being invited to the table, having a seat at the table. Inclusion is uh, having a voice at the table. But belonging, that's being heard, being listened to at the table. That means you, you have a place. Your, your spiritual gift is being exercised in the body of Christ. So I think only the church really can do the embracing, that strong sense of belonging here, let's, we want to learn from you. What can we learn from your experience? How can our fellowship be enriched by what you've learned about God and about hardship? So those are just some random thoughts right there about what churches did and can do even now um, to honor the Luke 14 mandate and make that vision of Jesus become a reality. And as churches do that, um, explore with me a little bit more. How how have you experienced churches actually grow and be better for it, um, more richly textured and the ways that you're describing? Are there some practical things that churches could kind of put their heads around and say, yeah, we want to grow in these ways? Well, here's a good example, and it's a true example. <clears throat> There's a church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and uh, my friends, uh, Greg and Lori uh, Gehrig attend there. And, and Greg and Lori were trying to kickstart a disability ministry in their church. And it, it wasn't going anywhere um, because people were reticent. People were a little embarrassed. People didn't know if they wanted to get involved and then stay committed. <laughs> it's a big deal. And so um, what they decided to do was to start up a Wednesday evening, what they called Joyful Praise because there were some church members who were on Sunday mornings a little ruffled that um, some of the disabled people, young adults in the congregation, were um, would, would blurt out their praise to God, or would be a little too loud, or or you know, just 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 say something or shout out something at and, and during the sermon that was a little awkward. So they came up with joyful praise on Wednesday night and invited all the young people with disabilities to come and their parents. And it ended up being such a party, such a blast, that before you know it, their volunteers, able-bodied, typical volunteers, start telling other friends in the congregation, oh, you've got to see this. We have such fun on Wednesday night, joyful praise. You've got to come and take part. And before you know it, there were like 20, 30, now 40, typical, 50 typical volunteers who are um, you know, saying to other people, oh my goodness, the praise that happens to the Lord Jesus on Wednesday night, you wouldn't believe it. It's so much fun. And so that was a, it's a very organic illustration of how just, just, just 
people's hearts can be changed when they experience what it's like to actually see and take part in God's power being displayed through weakness. And it's absolutely irresistible. And now that church is all the richer, all the better for it. They have a very active disability ministry. It, is, it has remained very organic, not bureaucratic, although they do have a, a, a budget in the, in, the, in the church budget. They, they, you know, they've got leadership and elders to whom they have to acquiesce. Yes, yes. But it's so organic. It's so natural. It's so part of the fabric of that church now that special needs families are starting to come to that church from far distances because they've heard how welcoming and how embracing um, the congregation is, all because of Wednesday night joyful praise and how these young people and their joy in the Lord Jesus uh, became so contagious mm. among uh, everybody else in the congregation. Mm. Johnny, there's something that you said that uh, I want to pick up on, this notion of um, families with disabilities traveling to come to this particular church. Um, you and I have know, know and have heard and have talked about in a variety of contexts that families with disabilities, people with disabilities, um, may in fact be one of the largest unreached people groups uh, for the gospel. Why is that the case? Well, I could list the names of just off the top of my head, 20, 30 uh, couples who just on Sunday mornings, they have no strength. They're so overwhelmed. They, they barely darken the door of a church. Some are believers. Some are seekers. Some are quite resistant because they have been put off by the church. But um, this is, a, this is a, a population that often does not experience the reality of Christ's love in their families because no one's willing to make the sacrifice. No one's willing to, willing to make the, the extra effort. And so um, people with disabilities and their families are largely unchurched. If for no other reason, it's just too overwhelming to have one more thing to do on a Sunday morning when you are so tired from transporting your kid to all his medical appointments, meeting with teachers over their IEP programs and consultations, uh, taking your child to therapy. I mean, it is a constant, nonstop, 24-hour grind. It's never-ending when you have a, a child with a significant disability in your family. And so the, these, these people, these families, they need to see the reality of Jesus at work in their lives. They need to experience his love. And so um, I like to think of special needs families as a, a mission field of population that's never even been touched or reached. Um, although I would never want to convey that you ought to make that special needs families on your cul-de-sac, your personal project. No, they need to remain people, of course, people with whom you can make lively friendships. So I hope, if anything, that uh, our friends tuning in on the podcast will see that, uh, that here's a group of people who need Jesus. And perhaps uh, one of our listeners might, be, um, might know somebody on their cul-de-sac or their street or in their church or neighborhood or school district who needs the love of Christ. It's a tough balance to um, reach out to people as people and yet to understand the sacrificial um, call that it would be to welcome uh, people of varying abilities into our church community. How do we prevent 
um, our initiatives from becoming paternalistic, from becoming uh, an expression of this imbalance of abilities and power um, that often exists uh, with respect to engagements with communities um, that are different or less advantaged than the ones that we are privileged to live in? Well, that's a great question, Walter. And it, it's it's not a question directed only to um, persons with disabilities, but anybody of any ethnic origin, religious background, racial identity. I mean, we we tend to we tend to have this power power play. Uh, we have to tend to have an angle like we've got we've got the goods and you don't, and we're going to help you, and uh, you need help. And then, and it can tend to be very paternalistic, but if we could only serve as the Lord Jesus served, who, by the way, it says in Matthew chapter 28, he came not to be served, but to serve. And service always requires humility. It's like Jesus. Um, here he is, the king of the universe, getting undressed, getting down on his knees, and washing the dirty feet of his disciples. There was no paternalistic, oh, let me show you how to, uh, where your needs are and how I can help you. None of that at all. If only we could have the attitude of Christ, who, when he uh, washed his disciples' feet, was demonstrating pure humility. And uh, that is laudable Christian service. That's the way Christian service should look. Um, let me help you, because you know what? I think I can learn something from you. I think you have something to teach me. I think that I'm lacking something that you have and I want it. So let me share you with you, Jesus. And together, let's see what he teaches us in this. Hmm. And that's a better perspective when it comes to serving families struggling with disability. Hmm. Yeah, you're describing a situation where it's not ministry to, but it's a ministry along with that everyone is going to be growing uh, from this. And um, what a wonderful picture of what it means to just be the church, that we need everyone engaged, gifts that differ, um, because we're all interdependent in that way. But it's so difficult in our culture, we're so highly individualistic and success-oriented, to have that notion of mutual interdependence, of, of mutual need. Walter, I know uh, of a man, Pastor Mucklow, in Arizona, and you know how his disability ministry and his church started, which, by the way, is quite a thriving ministry right now. It started when early one Sunday morning, he was walking down one of the church hallways. Uh, not a lot of people were there at that time, and uh, uh, the access bus had dropped off a young man in a wheelchair with cerebral palsy who had wheeled himself into the church and was stuck trying to get into the bathroom. Uh, plus, he was not... Uh, his, his, his voice was uh, somewhat guttural and he couldn't really express himself real well, but he, he called out and pastor went up to him and said, can I help you? And he, he kind of groaned and gestured and he needed to get into the restroom. And so pastor looked around and didn't see anybody. So he opened the door and do you need any more help? And <laughs> quite a, quite a question to ask. And this young man vigorously shakes his head. Yes, yes, I do need help. Well, it turns out this young guy needed assistance going to the toilet, which meant pulling down his jeans and assisting him with, uh, with all those private routines. And the pastor had never done anything like this. He felt a little awkward and embarrassed and, 
embarrassed for himself, embarrassed for this young man, but the young man seemed to, to not mind. And, and when they were all finished and they, they wheeled out of that bathroom, Pastor Michael was a changed man. He thought to himself, oh my goodness, how many other people are there out there like this young man in our, in our parish, in our neighborhood? And that kick-started a real wonderful outreach to others like this guy with cerebral palsy. And I always think how it's funny, how it's so unique, how the way God throws us in a disability ministry. It's never Emily Post, picture perfect, all neat, tidy, regulated, and normal. No. It is always uncomely, um, a little ugly, messy, just like the cross. Mm. Ugly and messy. And yet that's where... uh, that's where love blossoms, doesn't it? Mm. Ugly and messy, and yet that's where love blossoms. Um, so true. But it's also the place where there's an expression of so much anger. Um, humanity, angry, and having put Jesus on the cross. Um, the anger of the crowds disappointed that God did not show up in the ways that they had expected a Messiah to show up. And you yourself talked about moments um, in your own life and certainly moments in the life of uh, people in your ministry where there is anger toward God. Uh, God, why me? Or does God even exist? How could a good God let this happen? How do you, how do you help people sort through some of the most theologically difficult questions that are now emotionally fraught questions? Well, that's, it's hard to answer in 65 words or less. Um, I think we can best help people understand the goodness of God. Yes, obviously through scripture, primarily through scripture, but we dare never just leave it uh, with an open Bible on their table and walk away. We just can't do that. We have got to back up what they learn from God's word with practical support, with love that evidences, that proves what they just learned about his character. Okay, if we learn that God is good, now let me show you what God's goodness looks like. Let me show you what it feels like. You know, let, let, let's, uh, let's pack a picnic uh, this afternoon and go out to the park and let's just, let's just talk. Let's just hang out together. We have to back up what they learn from scripture with practical love. And uh, that, as I said earlier in our podcast, softens people's hearts. It softens the hearts of those who are angry. It's pretty, pretty hard to uh, be angry against God when one of his children is, is loving you so tenderly and beautifully and selflessly. Um, and that's, I think that's what happened to me, Walter. My friends just loved me selflessly. And so I had a hard time staying angry at their God, the God of the Bible. And their actions softened my heart so much that finally I said, I just, I just want, I want the peace that I see you have. I, I, I can't find it. You're going to have to help me find it. And a friend wisely told me uh, 10 words that literally changed my life. They were, well, Johnny, God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Um, look at the cross, full of murder, torture, injustice, treason, 
all the things that God's hate, God hates. But yet God permitted all those awful things to accomplish something that he loved. And that is your salvation, salvation for the entire world. And Johnny, in the same way, God permitted what he hated, your spinal cord injury. He doesn't like quadriplegia, nothing good about it, but he has permitted it so that he can accomplish something that's lovely in your life. And how about you, a headstrong, stubborn teenager with a rebellious spirit being turned into a young woman who might demonstrate something of patience and peace and endurance? Can you believe that? And to me, Walter, it sounded plausible. And so I grabbed hold of that and I ran with it. And uh, to this day, 55 years later, I'm still learning um, about the goodness of God and how lovely and beautiful he is and how um, much I want to know him even more. You've described a, a lot of transformation that, have, that has happened within churches. Um, but what about culture at large? When we think about our culture at large, um, in your estimation, you know how how are disabilities viewed, and what what are some of the tensions that exist within our culture at large? But our culture's mores are shifting so rapidly. Who can even keep up with them? I mean, one minute we're seeing ads with um, young people with Down syndrome advertisements of young men in wheelchairs, you know, Target, Costco, whatever. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing them in the media, celebrated the media, the next thing, something else has, has, has hijacked that. And, and now we're talking about sexual identities. And so we're, you know, it, it, it's just, it's so rapid, so fast. It's so hard to keep up with. Um, I think our society's a little schizophrenic. On one hand, we have provided special education, special access uh, to people with disabilities. But on the other hand, we're, we're paving the way for them to have a special right to die. Mm. You know, we're, the United States is close behind Canada, uh, where now it is legal to um, request physician-assisted suicide if you are in the advanced stages, let's say of multiple sclerosis or Alzheimer's or, um, or Lou Gehrig's disease. So. Um, on one hand, we're, we're celebrating people with disabilities. On the other hand, um, we're letting them, you know, kill themselves if they, if they so desire. So it's a little schizophrenic. And the best, best way I can describe it is this. Let, let me give you this as an example. Um, I served on the National Council on Disability under President Reagan and then President Bush. And during my tenure on the council back in the late 80s, we drafted the original Americans with Disabilities Act. Uh, Congress didn't pass it the year I was on the council, but the following year when I was reappointed, other groups, disability groups got in on it and, and it did pass Congress. And in 1990, I was sitting on the South Lawn in the White House watching President Bush sign the Americans with Disabilities Act into law. And after that signing ceremony, the executive director of our council a man with osteogenesis imperfecta. He was a wonderful Jewish guy. Uh, he used a three-wheel scooter to get around. And he invited us to a reception at the Hyatt Regency across the street. And I'll never forget what he said at this reception. All 15 members of our council were there, 
some of us with disabilities, many of us special needs parents. And he said, this law is great in that it has removed discriminatory hiring uh, practices um, in places of employment. This means that more qualified people with disabilities will have access to good jobs. And he said, this law is good in that people like Johnny Erson Tata won't have to wheel her wheelchair down a back alley into the back door of a kitchen in order to get to her dining room table. And this law is good in that one day buses across America will have mechanical lifts. That means that people with disabilities will have access to transportation. And then he paused and said, but this law is not going to change the employer's heart. It's not going to change the heart of the maitre d' at the restaurant. It's not going to change the heart of the bus driver. No state proclamation, no civil rights legislation can do that. And then he raised his glass and said, here's the changed hearts. Hmm. And I thought, oh my goodness, tears were streaming down my face at that point. Because I thought that's, that's our job as Christians. We've got the message, the gospel that can change people's hearts. So asking about society and its, uh, its you know, thermostat setting, when it comes to its temperature about whether they're hot or cold about helping people with disabilities or creating access for them, it's totally unreliable because there's no heart in it. You can't ask a bureaucracy to be compassionate. Bureaucracies just don't have it in them. And the gospel of Jesus Christ does have heart. And so um, I'm always really um, pointing to the church and say, guys, you can't be faulting. Um, society unless we get out there and shake the salt of the gospel and shine its light on behalf of those with disabilities because it's it's people's hearts that need to change not just the law johnny what work is left to be done within the church to either change perceptions increase the inclusion um, at the table full inclusion at the table when you envision this next decade what what work is left to be done in the church? Well, I think it would be great if the church opened the doors for many more qualified people with disabilities to serve in areas of leadership. Um, we see special needs families and we see kids and young adults with disabilities participating in church programs, church outreach. But I would love to see more people with disabilities step into roles as Sunday school teachers or Christian education directors or step into the role of elder or pastors. Let's see some pastors. I just think it would be great. It'd be so beneficial for the church to see a living audio visual aid up front of God's power displayed through weakness. There's nothing like audio visual aids to teach a lesson from God's word. And when we have people with disabilities serving in leadership, I think that would be the next step. This next decade, I'd like to see more seminaries, be more um, assertive and uh, recruiting people with disabilities. I'd like to see um, special training for pastors uh, to welcome and embrace people with disabilities. I know that our ministry, Johnny and Friends, has an online course called Beyond Suffering for church leaders who are looking for ways to include people with disabilities in areas of leadership in their congregations. So 
I think that's one thing I'd like to see in the next 10 years. As we draw our conversation to a close, Johnny, what is it that gives you hope? You know, it is the it, hope. Hope is found in what? Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope, he's the God of hope. May the God of hope give you all joy and peace as you trust in him. The gospel is filled with hope. For instance, um, you know, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 says, let us make man in our image. And we all know that we reflect God when we create beauty, when we love selflessly, judge fairly. And, and we love telling this to people who have intellectual disabilities. Um, even young people with Down syndrome, um, we want them to celebrate the fact that they reflect the awesome God of the universe. What good news. But you know, it's not good enough. To learn that you reflect the image of God is a, is a glorious truth, but it's not a hopeful one. Um, every human is made in the image of God, which means that God's enemies are created in his image. Unrepentant rebels are created in his image. Um, to focus on helping people feel created in God's image is not a saving effort. And there's a spectacularly higher, more hope-filled message, and that is the gospel. When we offer Christ, Jesus Christ to people, we invite them, I think John Piper said this, we invite them not to, not to celebrate the created image of God of themselves, but the recreated image, the child of God, a new creation in Christ. And I love that. I mean, it's, it all goes back to the gospel. That's what gives me hope. The gospel will triumph. Good will prevail. The story has a great ending. And our job, our responsibility is to fit in that story, to play our parts in that script, to bring about that triumphant, final, glorious uh, ending. And until then, we've got lots of reasons to Our guest on today's conversation has been Johnny Erickson Tata. I'm Walter Kim, and on behalf of us all, very special thanks to Johnny. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we help evangelicals foster thriving communities and navigate complexity with biblical clarity. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please sign up for our email list and visit our resource hub at nae.org.